1: I'm Sheila Murthy, the president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. We are so pleased that so many of you can join us for today's Murthy Law Firm monthly teleconference. Today's topic is strategies to help obtain visa approvals for your employees or candidates who are coming to work for your company in the United States, either on B1, H1, etc. I am so pleased to introduce you to two of our brilliant uh, and experienced attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm. Aaron Finkelstein, who has been the managing attorney of the firm and is the guru on so many different issues. He's been at the Murthy Law Firm at this point for approximately 15 years and has worked five years before that as an in the field of U.S. immigration law. Brian Green, who also has 10 or 15 years as an attorney and has been at the Murthy Law Firm for... Seven years at this point. So between the three of us, we hope we will really be able to share some wonderful tips with you all. Uh, we would be remiss if we did not give thanks to Senthil and Gnana Mukham from the India Murthy of Office, which is Murti Immigration Services Private Limited from murthyindia.com, headquartered in Chennai with offices in Hyderabad and Mumbai. So without further ado, let's get started. So um, Aaron, if we can just get a sense from you on what's this issue about like fees and why why is it even important to mention and start off with fees and checks as our opening topic.
2: So hello, everyone. To start with, we want to start with the simple concept that simple does not necessarily mean non-problematic. Sometimes simple could be where all your problems do come from. Something as simple as failing to sign a check or something like, for example, the government recently have has had fee changes. So if let's take an e-visa, an investor visa, for example. If you have fees that decrease from $270 to $205, uh, changes that have taken place are in the E, the K, uh, has changes, the I-130, the I-600, the I-800. Even something as, hey, I'll overpay my fee, thinking that I'm paying the correct fee that used to be the correct fee, even something along those lines can cause a simple mistake, but nonetheless a rejection of an application and something that can be considered very, very problematic.
1: Yep. So it's huge. So I think... Aaron hit the nail on the head when he said, if you forget to date the check correctly, you forget to sign the check, you forget you double don't check the correct amount, like you even overpay. You think you're being extremely generous and overpaying. Remember, there were new visa fee changes that went into effect on September 12th of 2014. So all of these could result in the package, the petition package being sent back rejected, not denied, but rejected, sent back, and then you could lose weeks or months in the processing of the case, which may mean the difference between losing a project or getting a project, et cetera. So let's go on to the next topic, which is the H-1 and L-1 visas, which is what majority of you as employers are concerned with. You need to always start off, the first thing you do in terms of visas from the consulate, go to the website of the specific U.S. consular post, where your employees plan to apply for the visa, whether it's an H-1B or an L-1 or whatever, because each consular office has its own different requirements, and each of them have their own policies and philosophy in applying, and you will gain a lot of insight by going to the particular website before making a trip over. So if I can ask you, Brian, to briefly talk about why would a person pick, for example, the person's home country or country of citizenship versus going to a third country, what we call the TC and third country national visa process.
0: Thank you, Sheila. I think a lot of times it's perceived as being easier or more efficient if someone who's based in the US goes to have a visa interview in Vancouver or in Toronto or maybe in Mexico City. But unfortunately, because they are a third country national, as you said, this is not their home country, and probably not where their first visa was approved, it may be harder for that consulate, if there's any questions about documents or background material, they may have to contact India, if that's where the person got their visa approved, or or worse, they may give a 221G or just a denial and say, you need to apply in your home country. And we saw there are different, again, it's very good that you mentioned the websites because this summer, the U.S. consulates in Canada were very busy, and they shut down TCN processing for the summer. And if you go to the U.S. Post or the U.S. Embassy's website for Mexico City, you'll find that they've changed the rules a couple of times over the last couple of years. And now, if you are a visa applicant who's based in the U.S., and you're applying in the same category as your last approval, you can apply for that in Mexico City or one of the U.S. consulates in Mexico. With the exception of B1, B2, and H2 visas, they will not entertain third country national applications for those categories in Mexico.
1: Very good point. And I think people are now beginning to obviously get the idea because that rule was changed just a few years ago. And before that, everybody in the world was pretty much going to Mexico or Canada, depending on which, which you know, airport or which border was closest to where they lived or worked. Um, Aaron, if I can now jump to you, what are some of the concerns or issues and how can an IT consulting company try to increase its chance for obtaining H-1B visa approvals for their employees, uh, especially first-time H-1B visa applicants?
2: So the first thing I would recommend is if you're looking to supplement the documentation that was already submitted to USCIS, to immigration, to get the approval, the supplement should consist of updated letters, updated um, letters from your end client, updated letters from the mid-vendors. Those types of documentation will actually work and will be very beneficial. Uh, If those documentation are produced with clear description of the project, and more importantly, if the consular officer is convinced that the beneficiary is aware of the nature of the work and the work location, then generally a visa will be issued. However, if that documentation and client letters specifically are not available, sometimes if you have client contracts, again, consistent with the original filing to USCIS, uh, client contracts, other client documentation is available, uh, the beneficiary should be able to explain why the end-client letter is not available and should also be in a position to be able to receive the uh, visa. However, if no documentation is available, it's very likely that you'll get a 221G, uh, a request for additional information, and if you get the request for additional information, it'll be substantial and heavy, asking for a multitude of different things to better show Uh, the legitimacy of the H-1B and of the project that you're going to attend.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Aaron. Uh, uh, Brian, if I can jump to you, what are the other sorts of issues that the person needs to be concerned with?
0: I think it's important that the employer work with the employee to prepare them for the visa interview, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. But one thing the consul officers are on the lookout for and they're trained for this by the fraud protection units at each consulate and embassy. They're looking into the education and experience that was listed in the H-1B petition that was filed in the US. Mm-hmm. And they're also comparing that to documents. And more importantly, they'll ask questions of the visa applicant mm-hmm. at the window. Mm-hmm. And if they see a difference between what was said as education or experience, mm-hmm. They either might issue a 221G or worse, they might give you a 212A6C fraud finding to the worker, and then we have much bigger problems. So they're looking for uh, fraudulent experience letters, uh, fraudulent uh, mark sheets, any differences between what was given to USCIS and what's presented at the window in terms of that person's background.
1: Okay. And, you know, an important sort of important ideas or tips to keep in mind, where the H-1B employer is a direct employer... Uh, is to provide the government a detailed description of the internal project, the beneficiary, the employee's role in the project, detailed market analysis, and the petitioner's annual income tax return. Sometimes provide it in advance as opposed to waiting either for an RFE or if you get an RFE, then be very willing to prepare and prepare to respond and provide them that information. Also, if the an employee, the H-1B beneficiary, has worked in the United States, for that employer before then almost always at the consulate you can expect that the consular officers will request either w-2 year-end w-2s or recent pay stubs for three months or six months and sometimes they will even cross-check the bank statements to make sure that the employer has in fact paid the applicant in accordance with the LCA and the H-1B petition, because sometimes an employer may unfortunately fraudulently issue a false pay- uh, paycheck. And even though these are federal and state crimes, a lot of people don't realize what a big deal it is. So obviously, you don't want it to be doing anything that can risk anything for yourself, personally, your employees or your company's well-being.
2: Now, you know, it's interesting because one thing is very clear that Everything we're talking about now is if the employer filed the job to the USCIS, and that job got approved for the H-1B, and you're going to the consulate to get the visa based on the documents that were filed to USCIS. But to be very clear, there are some employers that follow the rule, I'm going to call it based on the Hernandez letter, that allows them to file an LCA change for a location and for some job duties to allow them to move over to a different location without filing an amended H-1B. Since the consulate, what they're looking for is they're looking for supplemental documentation on what was already submitted to USCIS. So if you're submitting documents that were never submitted to USCIS, like a different end client with a different LCA with different locations, you could almost guarantee that you're gonna get a 221G possibly a rejection, being sent back to KCC for a revocation.
0: And, Aaron, the KCC is the Kentucky Consular Center as part of the Department of State. So why is there a difference between what happens in the U.S. and what happens, say, at a consulate in India? Why can't you do an update LCA in, in, in India at the consulate?
2: But what the consulate officers said, Brian and I recently were on a panel with the consulate officers from, from Chennai, from Hyderabad, and what they said was if the USCIS looked at it and approved it, they don't feel the urgency to go behind that decision. They just want to see if that decision that they made is still there. But if you come back and you say, that decision is no longer there, he's working at a different end client with different type of work, with a different physical geographic location, then that petition itself they don't believe has been properly vetted with USCIS so now they feel the re- the responsibility to be very focused and to make sure every i is dotted every t is crossed which ultimately re- results in 221g's and it being sent back to KCC
1: wonderful Well, it's not wonderful when that happens, but it's useful to know what to expect and how this works. So one of the things we tell people all the time, and you as employers need to keep this tip, which will help to obtain H-1B visa approvals for your employees, is that the employee needs to very, very carefully read the H-1B petition the evening before or the L-1 petition, the job duties, the job description, the details, in fact, make the employee... Keep a, read it, and almost like they're writing an exam. Keep it aside, and now summarize on a piece of paper what do job duties that they would do because when they, when the consular officer asks, "So what are you going to do? What's your job title?" They better know exactly what terminology and what words to use, especially if either English is not their main language or they're not familiar with certain technical terminology because that's what the consular officer is going to hone on in determining whether to issue or not issue that H-1B or L-1 visa for the candidate. So, Aaron, if I can start with you and then jump to Brian uh, to discuss what are the other kinds of most common visa questions or sort of visa interview questions that are asked Um, from candidates, whether it's a B-1 or an H-1, et cetera.
2: So to start with, a very common question is, why do you want to go to the United States? And this is very common for B-1, B-2, F-1. Any category that essentially has uh, uh, immigrant intent issues that you have to prove you do not have immigrant intent, that you have to prove that you have a domicile to return to, those types of things, the question of why do you want to go to the U.S. becomes very important. Uh, For for H-1Bs and L-1s, questions of how did you come to know about the employer or the petitioner for H-1Bs? Did you pay any money for the employer or the petitioner to file your case for you? Uh, Where will you work while you're in the United States? Do you have an end client? Where will you live while you're in the United States? These types of questions are all telling because number one, they demonstrate whether you truly know what the job is. They demonstrate whether it's a bona fide job or whether you're paying an employer for just the opportunity to get into the United States, and you'll figure it out at the end. Um, these that whether it's a family member, not that that's not legal, it's certainly legal, but it's certainly something that could potentially go into their thought processes. All of these types of questions are things that are open and fair game.
1: Brian, anything else that that the consular officers uh, ask of candidates uh, that employers should discuss with their employees?
0: Yeah, I think one of those crucial questions is what is your role at your employer or what is your role going to be on the end client project. And it goes back to what Aaron and I learned in Bangkok at the ALA conference we went to in February. We spoke with the consular officers and they said to us, they don't want to have someone give them a piece of paper through the window. They want to look the person in the eye and ask them, what are your job duties going to be? If the person can't explain that in real world terms, as you said earlier, there's going to be a problem maybe 221G. So, getting back to what you said about preparation, if that Employee is preparing the night before as like an exam. If they write down eight or ten job duties and they get nervous, maybe they remember three or four of those job duties, and three or four might be enough for the console. I say, yeah, you're gonna be coding and testing and doing some work on client requirements. That idea is keep it fresh in their mind. So if someone is nervous about meeting a government official, they can give back that information. So what is your role is very important. How many employees are at the company? How many people will be working on your project? What is the organizational structure of your employer? Is there a president, a vice president? Do you have a manager? You know, Are you working on a team? And what is your salary? The consular officer wants to get an idea. Not only, like as Aaron said, do you know where you're going to live and how long is your commute going to be? Have they told you what your salary is going to be and can you afford to live on that salary? Those are real-world answers that they're looking for.
1: Very good point, and that's especially, I guess, particular uh, important if, if anyone is doing a part-time H-1B position, because part-time H-1B positions, uh, while they may be paying fairly decent hourly wages and which are legally permitted for part-time H-1s, it could be, unless you're, you and the spouse are living together on each separate H-1B of your own, the question that might come up is, can you really afford to live? And would you become a concern of public charge, concern which they can, re- which could result in a 221G uh, delay, soft denial or, or, or denial of the H-1 or L-1 visa. And then other questions that we've touched upon are, you know, education. When did you graduate? Where did you graduate? What are your qualifications? Uh, you know, do you really believe that your work, edu- uh, prior work experience and your education relate to the job? It's the employee's responsibility to show and understand how the education and work experience connect and relate to the job. Uh, and if it does not match the job offer, then you need to show how you got that experience and how you can manage and do that job to get the approval. Um, and then they could, certainly could ask you if you've ever been denied a visa before or if you've traveled to the U.S., especially maybe on a B visa that could be even more relevant.
2: I, you know, it's funny. I find a lot of these questions are questions that the officers themselves, who are not technical people, it doesn't have an intrinsic meaning to the officer. For example, if you ask what tools or hardware will your employer be providing providing you with, um, you know, or or necessarily what's the hiring selection that's going on, these questions are more focused in terms of you being able to, to show that you can respond and that there are tools that are being provided or there's not, and here's why. There was a hiring selection, and this is what that process was. Um, have you met the met the person who interviewed you? Have you ever met the person who interviewed you before? well there's a reason for that question It's more to balance your response to the question I think is more valuable than in and than in actuality what the answer is many times that's not to say sometimes there aren't situations where the answer is extraordinarily important. But there are many, many times it's to see how you're going to answer and how you look at the officer and how you behave to see that there's a bona fides of what you're saying, that there's a legitimacy behind what you're saying.
1: Okay. And so let's now get to sort of some of the issues. I'm sure many of you are concerned because there are mid-vendor relationships and client relationships and all of that. So let's touch briefly upon... Um, the issues specific to H-1B relationships with respect to mid-vendors, et cetera. Brian, can I have you start? And maybe let's have a small discussion with Brian, Aaron, and myself on this issue.
0: Well, I think we've all talked about it with clients before, and we've seen this coming up. I think we we'll all remember back in 2010 when the um, new memo came out we had problems with the employer-employee relationship. Now there's been more questions about is there a right to control or is the employer able to control the worker through the series of contracts? How are they controlling them at the end client? So we're seeing more questions where consular officers want to see complete chains of contracts. They want to see whether there is a purchase order, is there a uh, documentation showing that the end client knows what the job dues will be. And what the consular officer will often do is issue a 221G and take the information from that applicant that they got at the window. They will call their fraud prevention unit, and then that fraud prevention unit will then call the end client and say, is employee so-and-so going to be reporting back to your work location? What's his role going to be or her role going to be? And are you, are you expecting them? And if the answers line up, the visa will be issued. But they're taking a deeper look now into how and where the worker is going to be doing their job and comparing that to the H-1B petition.
2: So they're literally breaking it down to whether the H-1B petitioner is a token employer or whether they'll actually have direct control of the applicant's work. Uh, I think it's even more apparent for small companies, for startup companies, companies with ten, less than 10 employees. Uh, consulates tend to ask about the employer-employee relationship and the financial viability of the company a little bit more. They often will issue 221Gs. Uh, and they'll go through many of the things that Brian asked for. You know, I could think uh, employment agreements, letters signed by the petitioner and the employees, complete copies of contracts and work orders, purchase, purchase orders between the employer and any vendor and any end client, end client letters, mid-vendor mid letters, uh, quarterly payroll reports for the employer, employer's bank statements, employer's tax returns, W-2s for the employees, an itinerary of service. Any of these types of things are fair game for them to ask on the 221G to shore up the viability, to shore up, to show the strength of the viability of the application. I think it goes even further to the applicant. They can ask for the resume. They can ask for the academic credentials, mark sheets, transcripts, uh, the applicant's W-2s for the past three years or pay stubs for the last six months. Any of these types of things are going to support the legitimacy of the job. And again, it's supporting the legitimacy of the original filing job. That's what they're looking at. It sounds more like I went forward, like ability to pay in these issues,
0: which aren't normally part of the H&B process. But you're saying that the consular officer has a doubt about whether this is a, a token employer or a company that really manages the worker and gives them benefits and has that responsibility. Is that where it's... I know it's not in a regulations. a point, but
2: also very much so where you're talking about a small company. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about a small company, less than 10 employees, and you're taught especially a company that's had multiple people that have been applied for the H-1, so they tend to vet it a little bit more. Maybe where there's one or two people
0: working at headquarters and most of their staff are out in the field working at end clients.
1: And Brian, what are your thoughts about the consular officers' questions for in-house projects?
0: I think we've seen it. It's, it sounds strange, but we've seen a worker go in and apply for a visa where the HMB petition clearly shows it's consulting and there's an end client involved, and the consular officer will ask questions or issue a 221G asking about in-house project, and, and you ask yourself, well, why is that happening? And what we've heard, especially from from Senthil and Nanamukuman in India, North India, is that if the consular officer – and we're not at the window, so none of us are going to know exactly what questions and answers were asked or given there's no videotape, if the consular officer either gets answers that are ambiguous and not clear or if there's maybe even a communication problem between the applicant and the consular officer, the officer may not believe that there's an end client project and may assume as a default that the person's going to be working in-house and they'll give that 221G saying give me proof of the in-house project, tell me what you're going to be doing for your H-1B petitioner. it's It's almost a favor because if you've done a bad job as the applicant, this is a second chance for you to try to convince the consular officer to approve the visa. They could just issue a denial or refuse a worksheet at that point, but instead they'll issue that, that request for evidence. And now, to make things a little bit easier, the U.S. consulates in Chennai, Mumbai, have dedicated email addresses where, um, I would call it RFE, where 221G documents can be submitted in PDF format only, and they're chennaihnl at state.gov and Mumbai I sorry Mumbai 797 at state.gov. Those two are two mechanisms where you can respond quicker to the 221G, hopefully get the uh, H-1B visa approved faster.
1: Okay, and so when you said none of us are at the window at the consulate to know exactly what to say, just by point of clarification, I've actually been on the other side of the window at the consulate.
0: I'm so jealous. <laughs>
1: Well, then you have to be born abroad and apply for a visa and not be born as a U.S. citizen with a silver spoon in your mouth, as most of my lawyers have the privilege of being born. Uh, But having gone through the immigration process, I remember first applying for the B-1, B-2 when I represented India at the World Jessup Moot Court Competition, and then a year or two years later for the F-1 visa to study at Harvard Law School, and then for the H-1B visa at Vancouver, Canada, um, to be able to go back home Um, for a very special family occasion. So, yep, I did the third, the third country national visa processing. It was interesting. It was a good learning experience. And so it's very helpful when speaking with the clients to know how stressful. um, And I remember when I got the F1 visa, majority of the candidates that day were, all of them were denied the F1s, which uh, makes it really scary and sad for them, but makes your success almost that much sweeter from a scary and selfish point of view. So it was kind of a strange experience. Uh, And you know, we were talking about the consulates in Chennai and Mumbai, but they've actually been refusing even H-4 visa applicants uh, based on not just 221G, which we expect, but even 214B, which most people look at 214B as proof of non-immigrant, the you know non-immigrant versus immigrant intent, and H-1 and H-4 aren't supposed to be questioned on that Visa at all, but the there's some the the way the regulation and the statute is actually written is 214b can be issued on based on improper documentation, insufficient documentation, and all of that, which they then use uh, for the applicant. And in the beginning, we would always try to say, well, the consular officer doesn't understand what they're doing, but apparently, they actually might be very sharp in understanding what they're doing. We've also been seeing, unfortunately, and you're you need to advise employees that whatever they do, L1, H1 employees, even B1 visa applicants coming for a business meeting or conference, that they cannot be tempted to provide misinformation, incorrect information, making up false experience letters. It may seem like common sense to most of us, but for whatever reason, when we're stressed out, we do all kinds of crazy things. And so what ends up happening is the consular officer will issue a 212A6 fraud finding which could pretty much result in almost becoming a lifetime bar for the person to enter the United States. At the Muthi Law Firm, we've been very successful in obtaining 212D3 non-immigrant visa waivers and immigrant visa waivers. But to tell you the truth, it costs a ton of money, a ton of time. It's very stressful and the process can take years and years. And you as an employer don't want to be spending all of your time dealing with those issues rather than focusing on on finding new companies, new clients, paying your bills and keeping the profit running along, chugging right along. Let's now jump to visa issues specific to L1 visas if I can. And Aaron, I'll start with you and then Brian, you can jump in.
2: Well, I'm just gonna make one quick point on the last thing that you said Sheila. Sometimes we'll see an an employer or an employee will embellish the resume just a little bit because they're trying to not do necessarily anything with immigration, but they're trying to land the end client. And so they're trying to land the end client. So they say, if I just say this or if I just write it this way, it's something that'll work. But you have to remember, if you're submitting that resume to a government agency and that government agency vets your resume, if they start calling employers and they start finding out information, the second they find a contradiction, that's fraud. That potentially could be considered fraud. And then it becomes an uphill battle. So I think you have to be very, very cautious in that regard. Uh, issues related, uh, specific issues for L1s. So the first thing I would tell you is for L1B visas, often they're questioned, the, the applicant is questioned about his or her knowledge of the product, product or services of the employer. And the reason they're questioned is this is supposed to be a specialized knowledge category this is supposed this is a specialized knowledge category this is a category where it's their knowledge that's opening the door for them to be able to come into the united states so asking hey what do you know articulated at least enough that me a layman behind the counter is convinced does not seem like an unreasonable request
1: okay Brian, any issues that you're concerned with on the L-1B?
0: This is still a a trend we're seeing both in H-1B and also with L-1s. The consular officers are asking what's the actual work location where the L-1B worker is going to be located? And critically, who's going to control their day-to-day work? So it's like this right-to-control idea keeps spreading. But the consular officers will ask both those questions.
1: Okay. And of course, we've been seeing the recent trend with respect to high visa denials where there's a blanket L petition approval because the consular officers obviously want to dig in a little bit deeper and they don't feel as comfortable taking the full responsibility because with the individual L1 petition, the USCIS has vetted the application and approved it. Here they have to kind of do all of the legwork and the grunt work and they don't want to feel responsible. So if it's not clearly approvable, they're much more likely to either deny the visa or issue a 221G, asking for more information, And this happens in particular either when the applicant, they believe, is not fully qualified, doesn't have the required education or work experience, or is unable to articulate the specialized knowledge or the eligibility for the visa. And if they're not comfortable with the L-1 job duties, they will actually advise the applicant to apply for the individual L-1B petition with the USCIS.
2: Yeah, And L-1B is contrasted against the L-1A in the L1A the person's coming over to be a multinational executive, to be a manager, to manage professionals, coming for a more senior type of position. So in that situation the officers look to the experience that the applicant had uh, and to the proposed position in the United States to be able to determine if the experience they got were sufficient for them to fulfill the job that they're coming over to fulfill. But both instances, both in the L1 A, and in the L-1B, the applicant's role, their current position or their job in their home country, uh, the proposed position in the United States, the petitioner's ability and presence in the United States are all taken into consideration when a final decision is made.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Aaron. If we can jump to a very, very important point, which is SAOs or security advisory opinions, which are issued by the consular's officers and the consulates around the world. What exactly is a security advisory opinion? Why should an employer who's sponsoring an H-1 or an L-1 be concerned with an SAO? And how can they, what can they do to try to get something done faster, Brian?
0: I think the concern for employers should be, how soon can this employee come and join the company and start work? And if you have someone who is working in a sensitive technology area, they're working with certain material science applications, certain types of computer software programming that might be related to national security, or if you're a lucky company and you have an end client that's a a federal agency, a national defense project. In those situations, the worker is going to be vetted and they will check into that person's background to see, first off, is that technology or are that um, knowledge risky to either the person coming in the country or giving them more knowledge? Or are they appropriate for that national security project, that federal agency project? So if you have someone who has these issues, the consular officer will issue a request for a security advisory opinion. And that's going to require a stop on the case and that visa applicant will be stuck in their home country for anywhere from four to 12 weeks, sometimes longer. And especially if someone has traveled to a country like Afghanistan or Syria, someplace where they there's been a lot of trouble. They may also have an SAO problem. And there's a good article on the Murthy India website entitled Insights on Security Advisory Opinions, Technology Alert List. There is a list of technologies that could lead to a delay. So if you're planning to have this person on their project soon, you may want to take an SAO problem into mind and, and plan accordingly
1: right so you have the technology alert list then you have the whole dual use technology which of course a lot of people from india in chemical engineering or nuclear engineering etc might end up getting delayed so if you think that one of your employees that's very very smart and needs to go and come back because for an important time sensitive project and they've studied one of these areas that they consider to be a dual Um, And use technology. It could result in the SAO, the security advisory opinion, possible delays or denials. Um, We actually have a lot more information. It's about 30, 35 minutes. And we usually try to keep our conferences between 30 and 40 minutes because we are sensitive to the time and understand you're keeping valuable time in the middle of the day. And we were actually debating and toying with the idea of maybe doing a part two because we have about half the information. We'll have to try to figure out when and how we can schedule it because the next two or three topics have already been somewhat decided, but we will continue this important discussion with you all uh, because we realize how valuable and important it is for you as an employer to ensure that your candidates or employees will obtain the required non-immigrant visa at the U.S. Consulate, wherever in the world they go to, whether it's in India, the Europe, or in Australia, or in Africa. And on behalf of myself, Aaron Finkelstein, Brian Green, Sheila Murthy, myself, and our entire Murthy Law Firm, we thank you for making time to be a part of the conference today. And we really look forward to continuing to assist and guide you and your employees and your company so that you can continue to achieve great success very high approval rating, and obtain visas for your employees all over the world. Uh, We do travel to U.S. consulates around the world and help people who are stuck at consulates or embassies with visa issues, fraud issues, and other issues. And you know you are working with the world's number one and the best law firm on U.S. immigration law, murti.com, murti law firm. So thank you so much and have a great day. And we really look forward to continuing to take good care of you. Thank you.